Well, it's about that time. I, there may be a few more bodies on the way in, but uh, we'll go ahead and start with what we have here. Start with the word of prayer, and then we'll uh, get into this. Lord, we're grateful for your grace to us, your many graces to us, both special and common. Thank you for the Holy Spirit that administers them to us. Lord, we ask as we look at this material tonight that we would get a, uh, a broader understanding of your person, but also a greater appreciation and love uh, for you as a result of learning of uh, the complexity of your person and the uh, many wonderful things that, are, that the, the Holy Spirit does on our behalf on a regular basis. We pray all this in your name. Amen. Okay. Let me go ahead and start with this. Most of you should have gotten this. I think I got everybody as we went in. These are our course requirements such as they are. Now, I want to say something right up front here just to make sure that we're all on the same page. Um, For the last, you can see here, it's systematic four. For the last three semesters, uh, it's been a rather small group. We, uh, the uh, the church, started this as a uh, as a sort of a thing for those who are aspiring to uh, the uh, the leadership team. And so the idea was that those who who wanted to be or were at least interested in being participants and on on that level, that they would take these courses. They're pretty high level. Uh, in fact, I, I'll tell you right now, I just take my seminary notes that I use over at the seminary, and the idea was to make sure that people who would want to be participating at that level in the church uh, would have a, a keen grasp of this. But uh, there were a couple of folks who said, well, why do they get all the all the meaty stuff and we get all the all the all the lesser stuff and so the, the decision was made to expand this to anybody who wanted to be here but let me tell you right up front this is this is a heavy class I just want you to, to know that uh, going in um, it's you're going to see Greek and Hebrew words sprinkled here and there through the material there's sort of an expectation that uh, um, that there's a that you've got uh, uh, some good understanding already of your scriptures and such so if if you, if that's not what you signed up for, and I, and I recognize perhaps you didn't know that when you signed up, but if you that's not what you signed up for, I want to let you know right now so that uh, you can get plugged in somewhere where you are a little bit more comfortable. Uh, but just to let you know that that's that's the way that the class is going to be. So, um, and uh, I was told not to pull my punches and uh, and dumb down the class. So this is this is you're getting what you're getting here. And uh, and just be be aware of that. So uh, this is what you're signing up for. Okay, let's see here if we can't understand what we're doing here. Course description, systematic survey of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, sometimes called pneumatology. You can see in the word pneuma, uh, the word uh, air, uh, pneumatic tools, pneumonia, an air, a respiratory disorder. Right. So the study of the wind, the spirit, okay, including major discussions, firstly of his person and deity, what we'll start with, and then we'll spend the balance of our time, just the majority of our time, talking about his works, and we're going to put these into categories, his work in the world, among unbelievers, his work in Revelation, uh, not only uh, through Jesus Christ, he's uh, very active in the ministry of Jesus Christ, uh, but also the inspiration of Scripture and, and, and such. 
in believers generally, that is what he's doing for all believers of all ages, and then specifically what he's doing in the church. And uh, those are not always uh, precisely one and the same. So you can see where we're headed with the class. We're going to meet 7 o'clock. Note, note there, 7 o'clock. I know tonight we started at 7.15. Normally the uh, classes here start at 7.15, but this this class, just in order to get it through, we've, we've been starting at 7. Uh, now, if you can't make it on time, we're not going to throw you out or anything. But uh, uh, In fact, the first few minutes of the class we're going to give over to a quiz... Uh, which is supposed to stimulate some review. Uh, so if you're, if you're coming in a few minutes late, you'll miss the, the quiz, uh, but uh, you shouldn't miss any new material. So 7 to 8.15 on Wednesday nights from tonight through December 11th, but we will not meet November 20 or 27. So just realize that. Uh, the 27th is because of Thanksgiving. It's the day before Thanksgiving, so there's, uh, I don't think we're doing anything that night here. And then on the 20th, I've got a professional conference uh, out in San Diego, so I'm not going to be here then. Yes, sir? We probably will meet that night. We probably will meet that night after all. <laughs> so don't, don't assume that. Okay. So definitely not meeting on the 27th for Thanksgiving, but on the 20th, uh, Apparently, I've got a substitute teacher back there. <laughs> now, many of you have already picked up your textbook. I see a number of them floating around here. So, uh, Sinclair Ferguson, the Holy Spirit. Are you going to be my problem student back there? <laughs> when we designed the class, I guess I didn't communicate to you that uh, generally this class will pass. So much here, but has read a textbook, but we gave the people the option. Okay. They could they could get the textbook or not. If they okay. want the textbook, they can get it. It's optional reading. It's good reading, but they didn't have to. So that's what's going on here. So not everybody has signed up the textbook. Okay. If they decide they want to get it, read it. That's fine. Just tell us. You know, we'll get the and if this does seem a little bit too heavy for you, maybe borrow one from somebody and say, wow, this seems a bit heavy to me. I'll, I'll actually be recommending some some uh, maybe cookies on the lower shelf kinds of books here tonight. So uh, just keep a... We'll, we'll work through our bibliography right up front and as we do that, uh, we'll introduce you to some other resources uh, that might interest you more. Yes? May I ask, if we unavoidably have to miss a class, will it be... Accessible online. <coughs> yes, yes. It's being recorded right here, and uh, they'll be they'll be put up in a file which you can get at. Pete can give you access if, if it's not immediately available online. He can give you access. Okay. Good question. Um, assignments such as they are, reading uh, the expectation until tonight was to read the course textbook, but I understand that that's been made optional for you. And then evaluation, again, such as it is, I'm not actually going to collect these quizzes and, and score them for you and keep a record of who did, did what. But I'm going to start every class with a, a quiz. It's a pretty short quiz, three or four true-false, and maybe one to sort of make you think a little bit. And the idea then is just to sort of review what we did last week, 
and stimulate that by actually causing, asking you to uh, regurgitate back to me what we learned the previous week, and uh, we can talk about that. Okay, so they'll be graded in class, again, only with a review to review and refinement of areas that I communicated poorly or perhaps otherwise uh, you misunderstood along the way. Okay, so that's the plan. It's only 11 weeks because this, the, the fall semester is a shorter semester. Uh, so we're going to have to uh, make some good progress here. We've got about 70 pages to cover in 11 weeks, so that's that's a tall order. Uh, but we'll do our best, and I think we can I think we can make it happen. Okay. Any questions? <laughs> so we have bound notes, but we only had we didn't have enough copies for everybody because how many we're going to register. If you didn't get a copy, we'll make some more next week. We'll have bound copy of the notes for everybody. But you should have the, you don't have the bound copy, you should have the first uh, eight pages okay. in, a, in, a, in a staple form. Okay. Well, good. Okay, well, let's grab those notes then, and we will work our way through it. We're going to start, as I typically do in this class, these series of classes with a bibliography. Um, what we cover in this class is really only a survey of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. There's a lot more written to be read. And as questions come up, you may want to look further at other resources. And I want to let you know what some of these are that are available. We won't detail every one, but a few of them I want to, to mention here. Um, there's a number of books on Decision-Making, Guidance, the Holy Spirit, DeYoung, Kevin DeYoung, Just Do Something, I like the subtitle here, How to Make a Decision Without Dreams, Visions, Fleeces, Open Doors, Random Bible Verses, Casting Lots, Liver Shivers, or Writing in the Sky. So it's a, it's a very helpful book because I think we sometimes tend to mystify uh, the idea of, of divine guidance, and I think he... Uh, he makes it a bit plain for us. Other other book on that tight on, on that topic is Gary Friesen's Decision Making in the Will of God. Really a pioneer work. Got himself a lot of grief for it, but I think uh, really won the day. It's an outstanding book on guidance. Also, uh, there's a book by Petty in the same line, James Petty, Step by Step, Divine Guidance for Ordinary Christians. Uh, some other books along here, uh, books on Miraculous gifts and miracles uh, would include here uh, some materials here by Thomas Edgar. Anything that he's put out is usually quite good. Uh, F. David Farnell has written some material on New Testament prophecy, whether it continues, what it look like, looks like, etc. I've also included here, if I can put it this way, uh, some of the bad guys, uh, some of the uh, some of those who are perpetrating uh, New Testament prophecy and uh, and revelations in the present day, and I put them in there, and I don't actually put any sort of asterisk alongside of them, so let me point some of these out. Wayne Grudem's Gift of Prophecy in the New Testament, I don't recommend that. I just put that in there for completion's sake. Also, Sam Storms, Practicing the Power. These are two books that I, w I want to sort of steer you away from, but then at the same time, if you want to read up on what they're saying, I want to make you aware of what's available. 
Uh, uh, let me see here. Other books on, on the tongues issue, Richard Gaffin, Perspectives on Pentecost also. Uh, Our Miraculous Gifts for Today, top of page two, Wayne Grudem's edited work there. Uh, there's four views on miraculous gifts, and, and uh, Richard Gaffin uh, contributes to that. That's the, uh, the outstanding uh, treatment that you want to, uh, to look at. MacArthur's book here, Charismatic Chaos, is, is an outstanding uh, piece. I probably should have put his newer work here, Strange Fire. This came out here well, about three years ago or so. That might be another one that you could put on your list. Um, I have some materials here for John Murray. Uh, those of you who've taken classes with me in the past know that I have a great deal of respect for John Murray. I probably borrowed more from him than any other single theologian, with perhaps the exception of Dr. McCune. Uh, but uh, Doc, uh, John Murray really has some, really is able to lay out very plainly some difficult doctrines. And uh, there's several here that I want to put out in front of you, the assurance of faith, one of the best articles out there on the assurance of salvation, how the Holy Spirit assures the person of salvation. The Holy Spirit's work in common grace, which is going to be one of our earlier topics here, but uh, oftentimes when we think about grace, we think of Jesus saving us. Uh, But there's also what we call common grace, that is the graces that God gives us every day, uh, whereby the sun comes up and the rain comes down, and... uh, uh, you know, all kinds of pleasant things happen to us during the course of, of life. These are called common grace. He does a very good job laying this out. He also has a good uh, treatment here, guidance of the Spirit, and also has a five-part thing on sanctification, which is really outstanding. If you want the definitive, longest, biggest treatment of the Holy Spirit seven written, John Owen's book here, A Discourse Concerning, the Holy Spirit is probably the largest book on the Holy Spirit that's ever been written, very comprehensive and, and uh, trustworthy in nearly every part. J.I. Potbacker has also written a very good book on sanctification, Keep in Step with the Spirit. Um, if, this next book here on the list, Edwin Palmer's Person and Ministry of the Holy Spirit, this is a book that... Uh, I require for my institute class back at the uh, back at Inner City. We have we have of course we have seminary classes. This is our my textbook. Uh, when I teach the uh, teach the Bible Institute, which is uh, ordinary church folks like you, uh, uh, that this is the book that I require. I think it's a it's a perhaps a little bit more accessible. And so, if you want to do a little outside reading along with what we're doing here, this is one I highly recommend. Uh, I. I believe you can still get this new. It went out of print for a long time, but I think it's back in print. And so uh, just hunt around on Amazon, and I think you'll come up with, be able to come up with new copies, if not that, certainly used ones. Uh, Larry Pettigrew's book, New Covenant Ministry of the Holy Spirit, I'll lean on for some of the uh, material about the Holy Spirit's work in the church today. And let me see here. Uh... I'll have to say something about John Walbert. I, I get a mixed, he gets a mixed review from me. He's got some very helpful material in that he's a dispensationalist and understands the difference between the Holy Spirit's ministry in the Old Testament versus the New Testament. Nonetheless, he's got some pretty troubling ideas about 
sanctification, filling of the Spirit, uh, and other things that uh, uh, that that gives lets me give him less than high scores. Uh, it's been a long that, that book's been around a long time and it's been recommended all over the place. But I've, I've actually got some reservations here. We'll talk about that as we work our way through here. And the other the, the other one that I want to mention here is is BB Warfield. Uh, Lion of Princeton uh, in the late 19th century, early 20th century, uh, waged battle royal against the uh, liberals uh, within Presbyterian, Northern Presbyterianism, and uh, really was able to hold Princeton to the to a conservative, uh, orthodox position. Uh, but when he passes on in the 1920s. Uh, they were unable to keep it. And so uh, what ends up happening is that his successors uh, go out and start uh, Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia during the mid-1930s. But uh, Warfield, really one of the greatest theologians that America has ever produced. Um, and one of his key works that he, that he put together is his studies in perfection. Uh, whereby he goes after a very serious error uh, within conservative circles uh, uh, called Keswick theology. It's a view of sanctification uh, that has a number of deficiencies. Uh, We'll talk about that later on in the course. If that name means nothing to you, uh, don't worry. We'll define it as we go along. But for now, just recognize that he's. this is one of his classic, of course, everybody's familiar with his inspiration and authority of the Bible, classic book that sort of drew a line in the sand between liberals and fundamentalists uh, back the early part of the last century with a series, it's really a series of essays. And this is, this is one of his other uh, great works uh, that he put out during his lifetime. Okay? So there's some, there's some books for you to follow up on. Any questions about what's here? Something I didn't talk about or something that's not here that you were wondering about? Might be able to have some comment. Anyone? Yes, sir. Uh, number five on page one. Seven, one, Let me see. What is it? <laughs> yeah. Sometimes, yes, but uh, but that, those those articles are pretty good. <laughs> I can't I can't vouch for everything he says, but those articles are pretty good. <laughs> Anything else? Okay, well, let's go ahead and get a start with the notes proper here, and I'm going to start in a way that's perhaps a little bit surprising to you. I don't I don't know, but I want to start with a history of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit in the church. And the reason I do that is because, well, those who know history are the least likely to repeat it, right? Um, and it's really fascinating to see the number of problems with respect to the Holy Spirit that have come up multiple times, and they come up and we think, ah, oh, we've got a new problem here, and that's actually a problem that's happened twice or three three other times in the history of the church. Um, and uh, the, the, the I had a professor when I was going through my doctoral program who says the best theologian is the best historian. 
Uh, the best historian is the best theologian, and I've, I've come to appreciate that. The uh, fact is, people who spend a lot of time looking at history have an uncanny ability to predict the future, and so there's a sense in which we're going to try and do a little bit of that uh, tonight, probably into next week. So what I want to start here is to start with the early church all the way through the, all the way through the present day. Um, and, uh, you know, right up front, we don't really see too many errors uh, showing up. You know, there's a little disagreement, I say here, about the deity of the Holy Spirit. Everybody uh, accepted that, except a few stray heretics uh, that you can that you can spot. But uh, in the main, the, this was not a problem. But there were some points of disunity that begin to show up with respect to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. I say, while nearly all the church fathers affirmed that the Holy Spirit was God and as and an equal object of worship, some, such as Clement, who generally we have high regard for, reflected some doubt about the Spirit's personality. It wasn't a person, but rather some sort of a force, uh, some sort of, uh, of, a, of, a, of an immaterial aspect to God. Uh, something and uh, something of what we might call a subordinationist strand begins. So the Holy Spirit is God, but He's not God like the Father's God. He's not God like the Son is God. He's He's something lesser. In fact, uh, I think sometimes it's the way we think. I don't know that anybody here would actually come out and say, "Oh, I don't think the Holy Spirit's God." Nonetheless, I think oftentimes He sort of sort of drops to the I mean, he always comes last in the list, um, and uh, and we, we tend to give much more attention to the Father and the Son, and so the Holy Spirit sometimes is minimized, uh, whether whether we would do it that consciously or not, and we have to be we have to be concerned about that. Okay, um, so suggesting then that there is a lesser status afforded to the third person. <clears throat> now, early on, this was probably more a matter of immaturity. Uh, theological immaturity, the, the doctrine of the Trinity really doesn't come to, to full flower until the 3rd and 4th uh, centuries, Tertullian, Augustine, and others, who really get a, a, a firmer handle on uh, what the Trinity is all about. So in some senses, this is probably a reflection of theological immaturity, but some of these things come back uh, later on. Marcion was in the 2nd century, rejected the continuity of the two testaments, argued that the Old Testament was a different God than the God of the New Testament. And so he, 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 part of how he said that is that there are different animating spirits that reflect the Old and New Testament, respectively. So the spirit of the Old Testament for him was substandard. The spirit of the New Testament, on the other hand, is much more. he has much more positive thoughts about so we have this dichotomy developing. Sibelius, sometimes you hear the word Sibelianism, third century, affirmed here, we talked about this in previous classes here, modalist, modalism. Okay, and so God is one, he just shows up in a number of different ways. So denial here of the Trinity and of the personality, distinct personality of the three members of the, of the Trinity. So these are things that are popping up. And then Macedonius. 
uh, comes up with a theory that uh, mirrors one we talked about last semester uh, with Christology, and that is Arianism. The idea of Arianism is that God the Father created Jesus as the first and greatest of his creations, so he's not God, he's divine, but he's not God, so he's somehow less than God. Uh, Well, this fellow Macedonius does the same thing with respect to the Holy Spirit. Uh, The Holy Spirit is a product of the Father and of the Son, something that is created within time and not eternal and co-equal with the other members of the Trinity. So here are some early heresies that start to emerge very early on in the history of the church, and we're going to see some of these come back uh, time and again. Probably the, uh, th- th- there's also a number of concerns uh, that uh, st- we're going to have to look through the whole, the whole story to see where these are going. But for now, let, let me just say that there's some, there are some strands in the sweater that we're going to start pulling here uh, that are going to unravel in future centuries. And they're tied here to a number of key texts in the New Testament that caused confusion. And these confusing texts then led to heresies later on. For instance, the Ephesian believers in Acts 19 were spirit-baptized years after they were converted. Okay, so remember the story uh, that they're, uh, that they're, they're these, these uh, believers who, were, who, had, who had long been believed in the message of John, uh, so they believed in the coming Messiah, but weren't aware of all the things that had happened in, in Israel over the course of years. And when uh, the missionary team gets there, they're teaching orthodox, more or less Christian doctrine, uh, but they had not yet really come in contact with the church. And so the question was asked, have you received the baptism of the Spirit? Have you been baptized since you were saved? And they said, no, all we have is the baptism of John. Okay, and so they were immediately baptized and uh, apparently gave, uh, gave testimony to that with, with the, probably the miracle of tongues again. And so we find that these people were actually, they actually received the baptism of the Holy Spirit years after they were converted. And so what ends up happening is this, uh, some, some, will take, some are going to take this idea and make this normative. She can get saved and received the baptism of the Holy Spirit 10 years later or 20 years later. Another problem, similar, is in Acts chapter 8, where the same thing happens to the Samaritan believers. Uh, they, had, uh, they had responded favorably. Same thing in a later part of Acts chapter 8, where we have, um, uh, where, where we actually have Cornelius and others who receive uh, the Holy Spirit and uh, we find later on that the laying on of a hand is associated with the giving of the Holy Spirit. Uh, we still do a little bit of that in, uh, in the church today, right? If, uh, if uh, someone's going to become a, an elder or pastor, uh, there will be a laying on of hands emblematic here of the giving of the Holy Spirit to that person. Uh, obviously not in a, in a, a literal sense, uh, but the idea that the Holy Spirit... Uh, has has equipped that person uh, to uh, to engage in in pastoral ministry and such, and so so these these texts all are going to come back to us 
uh, because uh, we have the whole, uh, these works of the Holy Spirit that are a bit confusing to us. Okay, So uh, we'll, we'll leave it there for now, but we'll come back to them. As you work your way into the second and third centuries, you're going to see that there are differentiations between the works of the Spirit that are associated, I say here, with external rites. Let let me tell you where I'm going with this. Uh, The seven sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church uh, are all, you're going to see them all emerge here. Okay? That each one of these is an endowment of grace, a special manifestation of the Holy Spirit. And so you're going to see the uh, the, uh, the seven sacraments of the church develop as spirit graces, or sometimes they're called chrisms. Okay, uh, you, can, you can perhaps hear the the, the, uh, the the word here charisma in there. Okay, so the idea of these gifts, these these chrisms of the Holy Spirit, whereby grace could be granted to, to people. And so you see this idea that's going to develop here. Let me see if I can work through some of these. Spirit baptism was regarded as an internal work reflected in the external rite of spirit water baptism. So far, so good. Except among some Gnostic sects, there was no separate rite of spirit baptism. But there are the Gnostics. And so uh, there was this, this idea that you could separate water and spirit baptism. So water baptism became associated with the seal of the Spirit and could be lost and regained through the rite of penance, which first shows up in a little book that's largely unobjectionable, except in this point, Shepherd of Hermas. Okay, And we find here the idea of penance emerging. So you can lose the seal of the spirit, or you can, and you can get it back again through penance. Yes. I have a question mm-hmm. because we believe that we get the Holy Spirit at the time of salvation. Correct. Were these people getting the spirit at the time, and they just didn't know it? Okay. Uh, yeah. R- right now, we're right now. I'm. I'm. I'm you mean in, in, in the Book of Acts? Yeah. Yeah. I, I we're we're going to work through this. Um, what I would understand here is that, you know, just as unbelievers in the Old Testament got saved and and were, you know, they were brought into salvation, you know, what, what happens at Pentecost, for instance, is not that 5,000 people or 3,000 and then later 12 to 5,000 people probably got saved for the first time there. I mean, probably a number of them were new converts, but a lot of these people are believing Jews who are coming to full acceptance here of the Messiah, and they receive this baptism, baptism of the Holy Spirit, which in in that day was quite visible, there were visible effects, and then they were water baptized as well, okay, in order to be brought into the church. Well, what we have here in these texts in Ephesians uh, Acts 8, 9, and 19 are individuals who weren't there at Pentecost. They were believers, they were doing everything right, uh, but they were uninformed or under-informed about what was happening 
They, they weren't aware of all the, the ministry of Christ, his death, burial, resurrection, uh, Pentecost, and so they're, they're, they're oblivious to this. They're, they're pressing on as best they know how, if, you know, isolated as they are from the events that are going on in, in Israel. But when that, that acti- when that news reaches them, same thing happens to them. I, I would say it's unique to that to the uh, to the first century era and people who are who were slow to receive some of this information. Okay. But 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 you can but you can imagine what say a Pentecostal or or, or other charismatics would do is say aha. There's people who get the Holy Spirit later. We can do the same. The same thing can happen to us. Okay, and so it becomes sort of sort of develops a doctrine of its own, which probably shouldn't have happened. Okay, so we have this water baptism, which is uh, sometimes associated with the seal of the Spirit, uh, that could be lost and regained through penance. And so we see some of the earliest expressions of the uh, of the uh, of the sacraments of the church that are starting to develop. Now, during the second century there's no evidence that water baptism was conferred upon anybody except those with evidence of the fruits of the spirit. So it's, we're still talking about believers baptism in the second and third centuries but as time goes on you're going to see here uh, that's going to change. In the late 2nd and early 3rd centuries, we see the rise of other chrisms, or sometimes called chrismations, by which the Spirit would give a fuller manifestation of himself in the form of spiritual gifts. Initially, there was no separate rite associated with these practices, baptism, and this latter rite, which is usually symbolized by the laying on of hands or anointing with oil, were conferred in the same service. However, as time went on, this was teased out and separated. And so as time passed, these chrismations take on new significance. Some begin to withhold chrismations until there was evidence of the, in, in the believer of a second work of faith, thus disjoining regeneration in some sense from service. So early on, so you... you, you you express faith early on and get baptized, but let's hold off on this next rite until we're sure, till they evidence faith in their lives. And so this ends up being called what? I mean, think if you're tracking with me, what would what rite would this be within the Roman Catholic Church? Confirmation, yes. Okay, so so, so you can see how this is this is being teased out as a as a second manifestation of grace here in the rite of or sacrament of confirmation. Okay, I say also here then uh, baptism started becoming earlier and earlier and earlier and earlier in the lives of individuals because people wanted their children to be sealed. I think we had, we're, we're tempted to do the same thing today, right, in Protestantism. Uh, but it became a particular problem uh, within this period because baptism slides earlier and earlier until it's actually at birth, or shortly thereafter. And the uh, the reason that this was this was done was was based on the fact that circumcision 
in the Old Testament was accomplished on babies. So how did you become part of the Israelite community in the Old Testament? You were a boy. Well, you were you were circumcised and you became part of the community. And so what ends up happening, baptism replaces this rite of circumcision for the New Testament, and now it's applied to babies. Okay? So babies are brought into the covenant community, the new covenant community, through the rite of baptism, and then they receive additional grace when they come of age at confirmation and affirm for themselves the faith uh, expressed by their parents uh, when they were born. Okay, so you can see another another one of these uh, uh, these these sacraments of the Holy Spirit uh, of the of the Roman Catholic Church emerging, and they're all tied with the Spirit. During the fourth and fifth centuries, we actually see the uh, coalescing of these ideas into the more familiar Roman Catholic rites. Sacrament of water baptism became so connected with regeneration and dwelling that the ideas became inseparable. The initiating work became divorced, however, and the from from the action and the baptism and seal of the Spirit were uh, were were were, uh, were 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 put earlier. And so this this loose idea of chrisms develops, especially in the Western Church, into the sacraments of confirmation in which seven gifts of the Spirit are conferred, and then later, holy ordination, whereby you could, by the laying on of hands, receive another endowment of the Holy Spirit for service, and then extreme unction, or, or, or anointing of those who are near death, uh, whereby additional grace could be given immediately before, uh, before, uh, uh, before death. And all of these are tied then with an anointing, often anointing with oil, but uh, sometimes just the anointing language, uh, which ties it then with the Holy Spirit. We also find here developing the practice of extraordinary uh, gifts. Uh, now, there, we're going to, these are going to come up at multiple points in the history of the church, but realize that uh, the extraordinary gifts that we see in Acts, and elsewhere in the New Testament sharply fall off after the first century. They almost disappear. In fact, uh, by the time we get to the fifth century, there's a fellow by the name of Theodore of Mopsuestia, generally a pretty good guy. He says this, Without a doubt, while the miracle gifts accompanied the effusion of the Spirit in the apostolic age, they have ceased long ago to find any place among us. Okay, so... Uh, we find that while there were miraculous gifts practiced in the biblical period, the New Testament period, they drop off sharply until uh, we've got some of the fathers of the church actually saying, we haven't, we've never seen them. They, they dropped off. They no longer exist. They no longer, they ceased long ago to have a place among us. And I think that's an important thing uh, for us to uh, keep in mind as we work our way through here, uh, because one of the one of the chief abuses of the Holy Spirit present age is some of these uh, enthusiasms, uh, tongues, prophecies, 
sometimes rolling in the aisle and shrieking and all sorts of other things, and uh, recognize that this has not been something that has been a continuous practice in the life of the church. First century, yes. Early church drops off entirely until it's no longer even known among the early church. Okay? So that's the early church. Any questions up till... Uh, this this is the formative years. We haven't really gotten to Roman Catholicism. That really doesn't uh, occur until about the fifth century. Uh, that it sort of coalesces into a a a a, a, uh, a recognizable form. Uh, but these are the first centuries. Any thoughts here? I know I know we're we're sort of introducing a number of ideas here. Uh, but uh, hopefully, that when we get through to these ideas systematically we'll remember some of this historical data and we can sort of get a a, a, a context uh, for them okay let's move into the medieval period then usually starts about 500 runs to the beginning of the Reformation and we find some interesting things developing along the way without a doubt the greatest debate, concerning the Holy Spirit in the period is what's sometimes called the Filioque controversy over the origin of the Spirit. It all Let's tell the story here. The Council of the, the Nicene Creed was put together in the 4th century, early 4th century, and then it was revised towards the end of the 4th century in the Constantinople the Creed of Constantinople and Nicaea. Uh, so that was the update of the Nicene Creed. And uh, it was it was accepted by the church broadly. Uh, but along the way, the Eastern and Western churches start to divide a bit. Uh, there was a lot of distrust between the Eastern and Western branches of the church. It really... Uh, comes to a head when there's actually uh, two popes, one pope for the West, one pope for the East, and they're actually about to go to war with one another. So it's, it really turns ugly here. Uh, but one of the reasons, one of the catalysts for this debate is this is this filioque con, uh, concern. The word, I'll put it up here on the board. Filioque. Okay. Uh, anybody have any Latin? What's Philly? Brother. I'm sorry? Brother. Okay. Actually, no. son. son. I mean, we, we talk about filial. I understand that. I, I can see where you're going with that. Uh, but uh, so, son, and then K, quay is what? Simple, simple word, and. Okay. And so, in the Nicene Creed, the wording was. Uh, that the Holy Spirit was sent from the Father. Uh, but there was, in the 6th century, a, uh, a group of Western church leaders uh, came together in a council and said, you know, we really need to, we really need to, uh, to, to uh, up, 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 update this uh, because we all know that it's not just that the Holy Spirit comes from the Father, but he comes from the Father and the Son. Okay, and so they add this word to the Nicene Creed, filioque, 
without any representation from the Eastern Church. So the Western Church adds this word. The Eastern Church isn't consulted. And when the Eastern folks from the Eastern Church find out about it, they just sort of blow up. Okay? And uh, probably it's not really so much of a theological controversy as it was a power struggle. Okay? The, the Eastern Church didn't like that the Western Church was making changes to the creeds without any consultation, and so they said, no, they dug their heels in. Filioque does not belong in the creed. For the Western Church, yes, it does. And so it it ends up being one of the major catalysts for the split uh, between the uh, the two sides of the church. Um, Now, my conclusion at the end here is that we there's probably there's probably should not be elevated beyond its own significance. Okay, what I mean by that is that there's probably not much of a theological debate here, okay, or an exegetical debate. There are some texts that speak of the Father sending the Spirit. There are other texts that speak of the Father and the Son sending the Spirit, and you can see them. Uh, reflected there, but the fact is there is no conflict. There is no there is no contradiction within the scriptures. Just one, some scriptures are more complete than others, and so there really probably isn't much of an issue here. Uh, but it became something of a of a of a of, of a firestorm within the local within the uh, church of the era, and we probably should be aware of it. Okay. Some more serious issues that come up, though, some some significant issues, are Gnosticism and mysticism. And these are uh, ideas that really um, captured the early church, really made some progress during the medieval period, and they're still with us today, Um, uh, perhaps... Perhaps there's latent elements of them in your own theology, uh, but uh, let's see if we can't uh, tease out what is meant. Okay, we'll start with Gnosticism here. Gnosticism is a label loosely applied to an assortment of expressions of Christian and Jewish Platonism. So a lot of Greek philosophy tied in with some Christian and Jewish thought began in the second century and then even though it was uh, was identified as heresy in principle tended to persist Gnostics have if I can put these three elements here that mark them one a belief in the superiority of the spiritual to the material lead uh, to, to the material, um, leading to self-abnegation and asceticism. Okay, so the spiritual is more important than the material. We should we should think of the body as evil. Uh, the uh, of course reflecting here the Platonic idea that uh, the body is the prison house, the soul, and so sin was bound up in the body but not in the spirit. And so there was this idea uh, that the spiritual was more important to the material. Material is always bad. Spiritual is good. 
And so what this leads to is, what I say here, self-abnegation and asceticism. A lot of, a lot of monks uh, uh, come out of this period uh, where they're trying to uh, say no to themselves uh, by doing all kinds of, of you know, self-injury to themselves at times. You know, they would beat themselves, they would starve themselves, they would take oaths of poverty, some of them would sit on top of poles for years at a time to keep themselves away from the from the, from the, uh, the, uh, the dangers that lurk in the material realm and so, the, so so we have a lot of this developing here. An elusive gnosis or transcendent knowledge, inaccessible by material or sensory channels becomes important, okay? So, not through the word, not through the normal channels such as the church and the preaching of the word and the reading of the word. Rather, as you become more spiritual, you begin to receive revelation immediately and directly from God. And so this this is sometimes called uh, uh, this this where this word gnostic comes from. Gnostic simply means the knowledgeable one. So gnostic is a knowledgeable one. So they they believed that they could receive spiritual knowledge, special spiritual knowledge, not available to ordinary Christians, by sort of whipping themselves into this state. Okay. Um, again, this is this. Uh, perhaps the asceticism is not such a big issue today, but the idea of people uh, being so close to God that they can get special data from Him is something that's very, very much alive and well in our day. A third element here is a two or sometimes three tiered approach to Christian maturity, whereby one can progress from being merely fleshly. To being spiritual, okay, and so uh, this idea of uh, of a ladder of spirituality begins to develop. So you begin as a fleshly person, okay, a, a, a physical person, and then you then you develop up into the uh, the the soulish person, and then you become the pneumaticoi, the the spiritual person, okay, and so. Uh, even if you're familiar with uh, Keswick theology or deeper life theology, you can you can see some of these elements that are reflected here. And again, it's really a lot of pride that's developing here. Um, we've got people who imagine that if they, you know, as Dr. Ola used to talk about, people who prayed with their eyes squeezed really so tight that you can see the little lights start to uh, start to blink. <laughs> Ever had that experience, right? Uh, but, but he said, and, and, but there's some people who think that if you do that, and things like that, that you can get closer to God, and you can sort of advance beyond your peers because you are more spiritual than they. Okay, and so you have this ladder approach to uh, to uh, to sanctification as you as you develop from being fleshly carnal up until you become spiritual, sukhikoi and then pneumaticoi so you've got these stages that you can work your way through 
uh, in in your sanctification. They also uh, had some dabblings in miraculous gifts. Some Gnostics viewed miraculous gifts as marks of a true Gnostic. So if you were had reached this plateau of spirituality, you would be capable of miracles. And that's because, in true Platonic fashion here, by transcending the realm of the material and the natural, you can get up into the realm of the supernatural. Okay? Um, you know, I, I sometimes draw this diagram uh, when I'm talking about uh, Karl Barth in the in the in the, uh, in, you know, in the in the 20th century, but there's this idea. There's there's this realm of spirit, and there's the realm of matter. There's the realm of eternity, the realm of time, the realm of the knowledge, noumena. Euthetic counseling, it's the, the, the counseling of the soul. And then there's phenomena, which is stuff. Okay, the phenomena are stuff. Um, uh, and, and so what the idea was well, we normally live down here, God lives up here, and if we can somehow vault ourselves up into this realm, then we're in the spiritual realm, and we're actually able to overcome some of the uh, of the of the natural limitations that are ours and where we live. And so, the true Gnostic then would often be capable in this approach of doing miracles. Okay, so a true Gnostic enters into the realm where miracle is normal. So miraculous gifts, such as prophecy and speaking in tongues, became critical indicators of the enhanced faith necessary to the higher state of Christianity. Okay, so really super-Christians can do more. Many Gnostics also anticipated a sweeping age of the Spirit that would cultivate in the consummation and thus accounted for the sudden increase in miraculous activity where there wasn't any previously. So the idea was, okay, we've entered into the last days. And so therefore we should, yeah, we understand that there weren't miracles for a number of centuries, but now we're in the mass, in the last days as, as indicated by our spirituality. And so the end is coming. And so we should expect miracles to start. You ever hear that argument given for Pentecostalism today? Now we're in the last days, and so we could, should expect miracles. Well, they were saying that 1,500 years ago. Okay, We've entered the last days, and so we should expect miracles. There's also here, and this, with this, this will close for the night, the idea of mysticism. Mysticism. Mysticism, at least as we've described them here in our notes is the understanding that immediate experiences and encounters that are neither public, objective, sensory, or even in some cases cognitive, they bypass the mind, constitute unassailable warrant for faith and practice. Okay, so that's what I mean by mysticism. You're getting something communicated to you from God through an experience, through an encounter with Him. It's not public, it's private, can't be corroborated. It's 
It's uh, it's not objective. It's subjective. I experience it. You can't argue with me. It's not sensory. It's just something that's felt. Nor in some cases, I say, even cognitive. It, it bypasses the mind, goes straight to the affections, emotions. And if you have these experiences, you have warrant for faith and practice. Okay? This sounds really weird and out there. But have you ever talked to some young Christian trying to figure out where he's going to go to college? And they're, they're, and they're struggling, trying to... You know, trying to figure this out and that out, and everybody's always asking them about where they're going to go to college. And finally, they say, "You know, I got peace with God. God told me I'm supposed to go to Bob Jones University." Now they'll stop asking me questions because I got this information from God because I squeezed my eyes close, you know, <laughs> close, close tightly enough. I got this special information from God. And this is, this is what we call mysticism. I got data from God directly, apart from the scriptures, apart from any normal means of revelation, and, and this it supersedes all of that. And it's very difficult to talk someone out of a decision like that, right? Because they think they've gotten something from God that's better than the Bible. Now, we're going to actually see in Second Peter... Peter actually says the Bible is much better than any experience you can possibly ever have as far as getting data from God. But nonetheless, mystics uh, understand that this is where information comes from. So mystics rest in innate, non-propositional, I just, I just felt led. In unmediated inner guidance as normative for informing both belief and especially action. Okay. So where the Gnostic pursues gnosis or special knowledge, the mystic pursues transcendent expressions of love and piety. And the result was very similar. Mystics, of, especially of the Eastern variety, viewed salvation as a ladder, beginning with purgation. This is, this is, a, this is a list that appears in some of the early Eastern fathers. You begin with purgation followed by illumination, followed by union with God, and finally ecstasy, where you've entered the realm of the divine. Mystical models of pneumatology were widespread in the Eastern Church. So if you're, if you're familiar with those who practiced Eastern Orthodoxy, there's a great deal more mysticism involved there than in the Western Church. So particularly among the monastics, this was true, the monks. So a, a particular emphasis was placed on concentrated meditation that would result in epiphanies. Okay, if you, if you you know sat alone in a corner and didn't say anything for a year, you'd get one of these experiences and God would speak to you. That's the idea. The phenomenon was less common in the West, but certainly was not unknown. Um, we're going to actually see next week that. Uh, Eastern Christianity sort of makes a sort of an end around and re-enters Western Christianity and Western Protestantism through the Anglicans and the Wesleyans. Um, we'll, uh, we'll get back. We'll get to get to that uh, next next time. But uh, so some of this ends up 
making an end around and getting into Western uh, Western Christianity and Western Protestantism. We'll hold you on that. That'll be the uh, teaser for next time. Okay. So mystics regularly assigned agency to mystical encounters to the spirit's imminent presence. The spirit's just floating about and making contact with me. Sometimes even suggested that the spirit's baptizing, indwelling, or filling works inaugurated a theosis. That is a, 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 a union of the human with God so that you actually become something of a superhuman. So you became divinized. There's the spark of divinity became a part of you here. And so you become so absorbed into God that the spirit begins functioning by proxy and controlling your will and emotions. Okay, I, I become one with God, and so my actions are no longer my own, but God's actually acting on my behalf. I say here, mystics have historically seen the miraculous as evidence of a believer's progress towards these more advanced transcendent states of piety. And I give some names of those uh, mystics uh, that were prominent during this period. So, again, again, I'm not, I'm, we're, we're, we're going through a descriptive discipline right now, history. This is what happened, not what should have happened. Uh, and uh, but but rather we're just sort of laying out the history of the ebb and flow of pneumatology as we work your way through the history of the church, so that when these things show up today, we actually have a, a context for understanding where they came from. Okay, we'll pick up with this next time uh, with the modern period, the Reformation to the present, and then we'll start into some of the uh, uh, more meaty material here about the person and work with the Spirit. Any closing questions that you have for the evening? Okay, so a little bit of fire hose tonight. This is kind of what it's going to be like. Just, uh, again, just remind you that this is, this. I'm using my seminary notes. This is, you know, high-level stuff. I understand that. Um, and if you come, come go, go away from here and say, I didn't know I was signing up for that. I will not hold it against you if you you know, find somewhere else to get yourself plugged in, but I'd like to think that uh, most of you will continue on with the course and, and uh, certainly want to welcome you to it. Okay? See you next week.